You're listening to Women Transcend. I'm Jennifer Todd, and this is a podcast that explores issues that affect women and girls worldwide and how they are able to overcome or transcend. Welcome, friends. I am thrilled to have you join us for this episode and also thrilled to announce that this episode marks the first of season two. We successfully launched season one and aired 26 weekly episodes of our podcast. We had a brief hiatus and now we're back with season two and we have even more provocative and powerful topics to discuss, including things like Sex education, where are our kids getting their information? How do we raise healthy girls? Women in tech, cyber harassment, we are all impacted by it. And do you really understand what foster care is? We look forward to bringing you these topics and many others. My name is Jennifer Todd, and I am the host of Women Transcend. Our episode today will be on slacktivism. So joining me is my co-host, John Philbeck. Hello, Jennifer. How are you, John? I can't complain. I'm doing very well, thank you. (laughs) You could. My dad always used to say, fine indeed, fine indeed. Yeah. I don't know if that's a Southern thing or not, but... Well, I find this topic really interesting. I think that listeners, you're going to find it very engaging At the same time, I almost find it, it hits a little close to home because... You're going to be asking yourself, am I a slacktivist too? Exactly. Exactly. So... I don't think um, I am. I don't think most of us feel like we are, but um, it's really worth taking a close look. Yeah. So since the election and and before that, you know, it was a very heated presidential campaign and probably unprecedented in such. But since the election of Donald Trump, there has been, I think most everyone would agree, um, an increase in involvement in the political process, or at least an increase in interest in being involved in the political process. Yeah. Um, you know, this quote unquote, the, the resistance. But as we will hear in today's interview, a lot of people are mistaking armchair politicking or political hobbyism as being engaged in the political process. And another way of saying that is they're slacktivists. Right. They're, you know, they are doing something. They're posting messages on social media platforms. But the question is, how effective is that really? Exactly. Yeah. So people are looking for an outlet for frustration. They're looking for like-minded people to share their concerns, to message back and forth. But is that really leading to any real political change? And I think one of the other issues is in one sense, if you're doing this and it's not effective, then then you're not moving forward at all. 
But in another sense, you could actually be moving backward in the sense that if someone feels like they're doing something positive and proactive and, and being an activist, and they feel like, well, my job is done here, uh, then they might actually be less likely to engage in sort of boots-on-the-ground political activism. And so you're sort of taking that person out of the, the potential pool of people who might be uh, more effective activists, would yeah, you say? that's an excellent point. So if you spend five hours on Twitter and Facebook just messaging back and forth to people on your list, and over time... I know from experience that list gets honed down to only like-minded people and you just share back and forth yeah. memes that you all agree on. And it's very satisfying and you really feel like you're tuned in and you're doing something positive. Yeah, exactly. And that's fine. And there is some something to be said for having that feeling of sort of validation that there is somebody else that shares the same frustration as I do. And I'm, you know, somebody else thinks that what just happened is totally crazy. But is that really contributing to policy change? Yeah. And what you said, you know, if if you're sitting on your couch or sitting at your desk and just tweeting and posting on Facebook and then doing that instead of going to a town hall and having your voice heard, then you are effectively removing yourself from the game, like yeah. you said. Yeah. I, I would say that probably most people that do that aren't doing it because they're just slack, you know? Yeah, exactly. It does make you a part of a community. And, you know, like like hobbyists, you become a member of this community and you share thoughts mm -hmm. and, you know, you s share information back and forth and you grow your circle of friends who share that same hobby. Yeah. But I think that you might falsely feel like you're having more of an impact on policy than you really are you're you know if you feel if you tweet for two hours a night you may feel like the impact you have is disproportionate to what it really is yeah yeah and it raises the question okay if this form of activism isn't really all that effective in fact then why is it not effective and what can be more effective yeah great questions and our guest will address those specifically. But I think what it comes down to, and, the, and he will discuss this, is it takes work, it takes boots on the ground, it takes going to town halls, it takes visiting your representative's office, it takes work. And things that may not feel as sort of immediately satisfying yes. as tweeting does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a challenge. Yeah. And it's hard for a lot of people to maybe get off work to go to a town hall, although they are, you know, generally held in the evenings, but people work in the evenings too. It's not as convenient. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a different level of engagement, but it's also a different level of impact. Sure. And we aren't talking about this to call anybody out because I am a slacktivist. <laughs> I will tell you that I... Tweets We're all and, guilty of this in, yeah, in some yeah. form or fashion. Um, and, you know, if I see something outrageous in the news, I am on Facebook or Twitter 
just messaging up a storm because I want to hear that others are outraged by it. But then I have to realize that it can't stop there. Yeah. If you really genuinely are horrified, outraged, and you really want to impact the process, to be a truly engaged advocate takes boots on the ground. Yeah. It takes showing up to meetings. It takes making an appointment and meeting with your representative. Yeah. They need to know you. They need to see your name and know who you are. So this this interview, just uh, we don't want to steal too much of Mark's story's thunder, but it's just chock full of ideas about ways to be an effective activist. And I think you really come out on the other side feeling energized. Yeah. Because we definitely, the point of this is not at all to to make anyone discouraged that... You're not effective, so just stop. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to say that. No, that, I mean, if you, if you feel like you're connecting, you just have to understand what it is. Yeah. It is more of a hobby and connecting with other hobbyists. Occasionally, things do happen and policy has changed through you know, tweet storms, for example, um, getting Trump's business advisory group, members of the business advisory group sure. to withdraw. Yeah. You know, that was largely due to social, to push back on social media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the change that happens on a day-to-day basis because of tweets, we have to be realistic about it. Yeah. So, it's good to bond over those hilarious um, memes, and yes. I read them, I pass them around, yeah. but I can't... Don't stop there. Yeah, I yeah. can't fool myself and think that by posting that meme or forwarding it or retweeting it, that that is making a difference to anyone's mind. Nobody's going to change their mind because of a meme, because we have to realize that for the most part... Social media is an echo chamber. Yes. We now have the ability to just hear and just read what we want to. Mm -hmm. So you're unlikely to engage in a meaningful way on social media and change any minds. So again, (laughs) don't want to discourage anyone. This is not meant to, this is meant to be more of an empowering. It's definitely an energizing conversation and not a discouraging conversation. So um, stay tuned for our first interview of season two on Slacktivism, the amazing Mark Story. He is an educator, an expert digital strategist, and a passionate advocate for cancer research. So my interview with Mark Story is coming up next. Welcome to Women Transcend Mark. Uh, thank you very much. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Great. I am really excited to just dive right into this because it is so important. It's so very timely. We're going to be talking about slacktivism today. And if you don't know what that is, stay tuned because uh, you're going to get a really good primer. So, 
can you give us a brief description of what you would say slacktivism is? Sure, I'd be happy to. I think to really understand what slacktivism is, you kind of have to pull the root of the word out or really separate the word, and it's being a slacker and an activist. And back in the day, you know, when I would do traditional public affairs or grassroots work, activism was getting people out, either getting out the vote or getting people on buses to go to a state capitol to advocate for a particular cause, doing hill days, essentially trying to do things to advance a particular movement, a point of view, particularly in the legislative or in the regulatory arenas. Slacktivism is, you know, I, I, I wrote about it as, as you saw some time ago in the Urban Dictionary, and, and I rarely quote the Urban Dictionary on a, on a family podcast, <laughs> but uh, the Urban Dictionary defines slacktivism as the self-deluded idea that by liking, sharing, or retweeting something, you are helping out. And here's kind of the example that I can give you is that activism – was as an organization or a person or an institution which is attempting to advocate for a cause and to get others to do the same, historically, you would want to get someone's name, telephone number, their email address. I mean, ideally, you'd probably want a little money from them too. But the thing was to make the personal connection with them because if they felt personally connected to the organization and its mission, they would be much more likely to do what they wanted the organization to do, to advocate for a cause in a meaningful way. Well, the advent of social media brought about slacktivism. You know, my own work is in, in the healthcare and in the cancer arenas. But what I've seen is social media has been wonderful as an advocacy tool in some ways in that anyone with a computer and you know a fair amount of knowledge could put together a Facebook page, a GoFundMe page, a Twitter account, and begin to use social media tools to, and here's the dreaded term that I hate, raise awareness about a particular cause or issue. I mean, I, I see a lot of that, like I said, particularly in the cancer community. You know, different cancer types, organizations that, that uh, represent people who are afflicted with different types of cancer quite often aren't happy with the levels of funding for research, much of which comes from the federal government. So let's say you lost a relative to a particular type of cancer, and then you looked up and you said, wow, I think that's a really low number. So what do you do is you create your movement on social media. And you say, well, this is great. I'm getting the word out and I'm raising awareness. At the same time, you're cannibalizing your own audience and you don't even know it. And that's what slacktivism is. Because when you're sitting on your couch at 10 o'clock at night and, you know, dinner's over and if you have kids, they're in bed and everything's taken care of, you're, you're kind of going through social media and you find a page, let's just say, about a particular type of cancer that afflicts someone. And there's a personal story and there's a picture or there's a candle or something like that. And you say to yourself, gosh, that affects me. So I'm going to like this or I'm going to share this. And then what happens is people do that and they pat themselves on the back and they declare themselves as activists. And then they move on to the picture of the cat with the, you know, a piece of string or the yeah. animated gif or something like this. And they completely drop the issue. But the problem is, is they have said to themselves, 
by interacting with this particular cause on social media and by spreading the word is, and I hear that a lot too and don't care for it, I am an activist. So they disengage from any sort of traditional activism whereby a group or an organizing entity would want to capture contact information, money, and ways to really motivate someone to show up in person to do something. But what social is doing is, yes, it's spreading awareness, but awareness does not or is not directly correlated to a lot of intended outcomes for activism groups, which is changing public policy, raising money, changing regulatory policy. I mean, think about the enormous movement that was Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. Well, they, they looked pretty powerful for some time, and they were an actual boots-on-the-ground movement. But they petered out uh-huh. because people lost attention. It got out of the news cycle. And, and what social has done to us is, is it has reduced our attention spans down to a 10-second snap. So people can engage and learn about something for shorter and shorter amounts of time. And as communicators, we have to, we have to capture people's attention and draw them in. Uh-huh. But if the only option you're giving people is to like or share something, then you're training them that the way you become an activist on social is to like or share. You pat yourself on the back. You get back to the bag of Fritos and you're 24 binge watching on television and you move on. And that's not what you want if you are the advocacy group. Uh huh. That is a great example because I have to say, when I think of the word slacktivism, I immediately go to political activism. And you bring up a great point that it's not just in the realm of, you know, trying to get someone elected. Um, it's also, you know, these, these cause related, like cancer advocating for, you know, additional funding or supporting a cause. And that that's a great point. And I think that was lost in my head. And I'm glad that you added that to the conversation. Well, yeah, thanks. And it's, it's, it's a little bit controversial to say this, but I've never backed away from controversial statements. <laughs> If I were to, to you know, and I, I, I once had the absolute honor um, of addressing a group of cancer advocates actually at the White House, and I delivered this message, and they were gobsmacked. I mean, their jaws hit the ground because no one had ever really talked to them in a way that said, you guys are extraordinarily well-intentioned, but you're cannibalizing yourselves, and you don't even know it. And the fundamental mistake that a lot of activists make is they confuse their own passion and their own messaging for something that someone else is going to care about. Uh And that's, that's communication in general. I mean, that's marketing. That's don't tell me how great your fertilizer is. Tell me how it's going to make my grass green. So don't tell me how passionate your cause is or how passionate you are about it. Tell me how it affects me. Tell me what it means to me. Tell me why I need to get involved in this movement and surrender my personally identifiable information. Uh Tell me why I need to do that. And in order to do that, as I mentioned, in an era of social media where people's attention spans are so finite – You have to be so expert at delivering a message that appeals to people to make them take the next step to then become part of a brick and mortar movement Uh versus using social. And the precursor to social was email. 
and I remember, you know, when I was in public affairs in the 2000s, and we discovered that you could actually, there was a, a company in Virginia that built a database where you could enter your zip code, and then your elected representatives would pop up, and then you could send them a templated email. Well, that lasted for about 10 minutes, because the people on Capitol Hill and in the state and the state governments figured out very quickly that all these were just coming from the same organization. And in an article that I encourage everyone to look up called Confessions of a Capitol Hill Staffer with wonderful revelations like, my mom thinks I work for the president. (laughs) (laughs) But these 24-year-olds were pretty sophisticated even then. So what they would do is they would just do an Outlook rule or something like that and have every single email that came in with the same content just go into a folder. And then pretty soon you would get a robo response back. And rather than than moving forward an effort or a cause, it would work against you because it would annoy the living stuffing out of the people who are getting bombarded with email. Uh-huh. And now social, if you're getting tagged or if a bunch of people are, are making comments on a Facebook page or something like that, it's noise. Yeah. Ultimately, what activism is are, you know, and I really don't like using this terminology, but it's boots on the ground. Uh-huh. And it's showing up in person for a cause that is important to more than just you in a way that you can communicate to others how it impacts them. But the thing is, timing is also important, even if you're a slacktivist, because, you know, I live right outside of Washington, D.C., and have been, you know, in and out of government and public affairs my entire career. And for those of you listening who aren't 100% familiar, there's something called Hill Days, Hill days are when it's National Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Day. And everybody gets together and they go in and they see their elected representatives and they get what's called the grab and grin. And then the 24-year-old staffer whose mom thinks he works for the president greets you. You get a grab and grin and a picture with the elected representative and then they move on to the next thing. The awareness day doesn't coincide with the legislative calendar for the funding for your cause. So again, I've told people this in the past, no one cares about your Hill Day, to be perfectly honest. What you need to care about is the legislative schedule of when these elected representatives are going to vote for your issue or for your cause. Know when that is when your elected representative two days later is going to vote yes or no on a particular bill that greatly affects your cause, know when that is. Uh-huh. Then you go in. Yeah. And then you're successful. Yeah, which requires a lot more, obviously, involvement and understanding and research and engagement in your own issue. Um, yep. So one thing that, that worries me about slacktivism is that, you know, now we're, we're able to limit who we interact with and we yep. end up in an echo chamber. And yep. so it seems that we're just liking each other's posts and we're sending back and forth to each other. This is great. Oh yes, I agree. This is great. What about my thing? Yes, that's great. And so there's no personal connection, like you said, and nothing is really accomplished when you're in that echo chamber, just agreeing with each other there's no engagement with a stakeholder or a decision maker or, you know, you can reinforce each other's strong 
beliefs, but you're not taking that next step. Yep. And it's getting worse. You know, uh, again, I have, I have the pleasure to teach at Hopkins and I actually recorded a lecture on election eve uh, last November, which was an interesting time to do it. Yeah. But I did some research and the Pew Internet Center or the Pew Center for Internet Research said that 28% of the people they surveyed in the last election cycle either blocked or unfriended someone based upon a political view. So you just mentioned the echo chamber, Jennifer. That just became more narrow. Uh-huh. So that the, the people with whom you interact in social media, then you're excluding the people who disagree with you because it, it seems that it's impossible to hold a different point of view without feeling the need to personally attack someone on social right now. Mm-hmm. So the echo chamber is getting smaller and yeah. it's getting worse if you can if you can be with what's called an affinity group you know people who share your same interests or your same passions and your causes that's fine but if you're if you're calling the list of the people with whom you interact on a regular basis and only talking to the people who think what you think believe what you believe and vote for the candidates that you think or the issues that you think are important that's kind of a narrow view of life yeah is there a role for social media in activism in real activism Yes, I think that there is a role in the way that there's a role for corporations with things like community managers. What community managers do in social is they become actually the face of the organization. They they are a person, they are a name, they're a face. They monitor what people are saying, they interact with them, they give them information, and they find a way to kind of tamp down on some of the people who are a little bit more extreme well, also giving people a regular reason to stay involved with an issue or to be interested in that issue. But they merely moderate a conversation that's already taking place. But that community manager is not a lobbyist who's getting paid to go to a state capitol or Capitol Hill and advocate for a particular issue. And you can't confuse the two. Community manager is great. Let's It's the care and feeding of the people who care about your issue on social media. Great. Boom. But do not ever confuse that person on social media for someone who can legitimately and effectively advance your issue. Yeah. Even if, you know, you are following and and get a follow back from a policymaker, if you tweet about something, that isn't going to move the ball at all. If you tweet to that, you know, your representative at Chuck Schumer or whatever, that is not the same as boots on the ground, as you would say. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And sophisticated boots on the ground, too. You know, in the cancer community, and you know, I, I won't mention names, but there's a there's a um, a very large, actually pretty disliked cancer advocacy group, and they get more than I believe thirty percent of the federal funding dollars for cancer research. Uh huh. And the reason why they're so effective is because they united the tribes. There uh-huh. were groups all over the place. But they united the tribes. They became big enough and powerful enough to say we need direct mail. We need effective lobbyists. We need television commercials. We need all kinds of things. 
and social is just a nice little add-on to what they have. Yeah. Uh-huh. And sure, not everybody can be, you know, it's there's there's nothing wrong with advocating for a particular cause using social media, but just do so with the understanding if you are creating slacktivists or if you are enabling activists. That is an excellent point. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, do you kind of see this slacktivism as a generational thing? Like, do we see this more uh, assigned to millennials? I'm not, uh, everybody calls out the millennials. Or is this kind of more of across the board thing? I think it's probably an across the board thing. What really, really, really scares me, and all you would have to do is ask my two teenagers when I'm constantly pounding on how they communicate via the written or the spoken word and being judged by that. But the, the way that they consume information, as I mentioned, is just getting smaller and smaller. I mean, we've gone from and, – and you have a background in academia, so you have done thesis papers, which are probably – I'm sure you've written hundreds and hundreds of pages in an academic setting before. Well, that's gone from that to PowerPoint presentations. Okay, yeah, well, there yeah. could be 20 slides, <laughs> but that's bulleted. Uh-huh. And then that's gone down to tweets, which are 140 characters. Uh-huh. And now that's down to 10-second snaps. Yep. So how on earth can you make a sophisticated argument for a complex topic – when we live in the age of bumper sticker communication, and this perhaps isn't isn't the best example because I don't I'm not advocating for or against war, uh, but I remember back in the first Gulf War there were people who who used the slogan "No blood for oil," and that's that was a very effective slogan. I mean mm-hmm. I remember seeing lots of bumper stickers for that and. Okay, and, and I'm not saying one is right or the other is wrong, but the, the I guess the opposing view to that was, well, if then Saddam Hussein had taken control of the oil fields in Saudi Arabia, he would have controlled 25% of the petroleum resources in the United States, and it would have had a global economic impact because the truck that drove the bread that you eat has to be fueled with diesel, and the diesel would cost more, so the bread would cost more, and the eggs would cost more. And that's a really long argument, and it's hard to make, whereas a bumper sticker that says no blood for oil, people could say, hmm, that makes – yeah, yeah, I'm I'm behind that. So the way that people consume information frightens me a little bit because some of the stuff that I see that's communicated back to me in a work setting, in an academic setting – to me, reflects the fact that there is much less emphasis put on the fluency or the degree of effectiveness with which you can communicate something. And sometimes it's, you know, how loud you shout, um, and sometimes it's how pretty your graphics look. But I think what gets lost is how effective your argumentation is, and it's got to be fast because people are not paying attention to long messages. Uh Uh-huh. So for an activist who may be listening to this and, and hearing, wow, you know what, I thought that I was advocating for my cause, but I am finding in this discussion that I am actually a slacktivist and most of what I've been doing is retweeting and um, Facebook posts. What, what couple of things would you say to that person to get them engaged in real activism? How much do you care? Would be my first question to the, you know, if you're 10 o'clock and you're sitting on your couch, how much do you care about this? Because if you care only to like or retweet something, 
than just be honest about it and say, you know, this is how much I care about it. I care to spend 10 seconds on it. And by the way, do you realize that it's, an, it's, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a staggering percentage of over 60% of the people who share things on social media, who share links, don't actually click through to the links that they're sharing. Oh, yeah, I believe that. They don't, they don't read it. Yeah. They just say, oh, this headline looks good. I'm going to yep. go ahead and I'm going to do it. And I swear one day that I'm going to come up with fake news of my own and a headline that links <laughs> to something else and is sensationalistic and just see how many people yeah. share it. <laughs> But if you are that person and say to yourself, I mean, if you just go back to the cancer community and that's something that is just so personal and so powerful for so many people who have suffered so many tragic losses, it's a highly emotional issue. So if you are clicking on something on social because you lost your mom to cancer, sit back and ask yourself, how important is this to me? Do I just want to share this or is this something that I truly care about? And then I'm going to take the extra five minutes to click on the Facebook page of the organization that is attempting to spark the advocacy and then find the website of the organization that is attempting to foment the advocacy and find out other ways how he or she can get more involved. But don't call yourself an activist if you're spending 10 seconds on it. Call yourself an activist if you're showing up and doing something. Yes, there you go. Thank you. So yeah, the place to stop is not the tweet or the Facebook post, but getting to the organization and looking on their website and seeing what is their call to action and how can I get involved? Yeah. Or if you only have, you know, if you only have a couple of minutes, use social to write back to the organization and at reply on Twitter or or write back on Facebook and say, how can I help? How can I get involved? Because they will pounce on it on the other side because, because advocacy organizations do want boots on the ground and they do want you to get involved. So if you only have 10 minutes and to think about it for that night and want to engage on it the next day or the day after, I guarantee you, you will hear back from the group as soon as they can possibly respond because so few people take the time to say, how can I help? Yeah, exactly. And also, don't assume that if you can't financially support an organization that you can't then support the organization because, you know, lots of people can't afford to donate to every cause that they care for. But if you are able to, to give a half an hour to show up to support, you know, to volunteer in the office or, you know, whatever it is that they need, they will take your time just as, as happily as a, a donation, Absolutely. You know, I, I brag in them all the time that my 16-year-old son just finished a summer internship in a in a very small advocacy group. They're in a house uh, in, in suburban Washington, D.C., and they work with historically undisturbed uh, Latino groups in the county. And they're always scraping for money and they're always scraping for resources. But boy, were they grateful to have him folding t-shirts. They were grateful to have him helping them inventory their computer equipment. They were grateful to have him doing things as a low-level intern, but that freed up people to go do other things that for that forward the 
the the the cause of the organization. Yeah, exactly. So you don't have to be the Gates Foundation to be able to give an amount of money that will be meaningful and you don't have to be, you know, give full time of yourself to be meaningful. Whatever you can give to a cause that you believe in will be meaningful. Absolutely. And I, I, I donate, well, I, I donate, I volunteer a lot of my time with the Children's Inn. And oh, the yeah. Children's Inn is a place at the National Institutes of Health that provides free housing. And it's not just that, uh-huh. but it's for critically ill children who are being treated at the National Institutes of Health. And NIH, or the National Institutes of Health, is where you go when you're out of options. Yeah. So you're being treated across the street at the clinical center, and the Children's Inn is constantly raising money to be able to house people for free for some of the, I'm going to get the number wrong, but it's thousands and thousands of families who come through there every single year. Uh But when I went to them and I said, I want to volunteer, I said, you don't want me stuffing envelopes. You know, I I have a background (laughs) in this. I have a background in fundraising. I've done public affairs. Let me help you do that. And to their everlasting credit, They heard me and they said, yes, Mark, please help us with the messaging, help us with the online delivery, Um, help us figure out our Google Analytics of who's coming to the website Mm -hmm. and who's not coming to the website, who's doing it and who's not doing it. So don't be afraid to ask to do something besides stuffing envelopes too. That is a great point that you may have a a skill set that, you know, even if if it's carpentry or something that that they need and and any cause that is lucky enough to afford some of your time is fortunate because you are extremely talented. And I so appreciate you joining us for this really important discussion. We're at a, a unique point in history, I think, and there are a lot of people wanting to get involved. And I think there are more people thinking that they're involved, but this, I hope, raises some questions about, can I raise my level of involvement to the next step, the next level? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I really thank you for lending your expertise and for all of the wonderful work that you do. So thank you so much for joining, Mark. Sure, it was my absolute pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you, friends, for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. You can do us a big favor and tell at least one other person about our podcast and how they can find us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you can be sure that you won't miss an episode. A big thanks to Mark Story for speaking with me for today's episode. And of course, to John Philbeck for doing all of the fabulous sound artistry so that we sound so good tweet us at women transcend or follow us on facebook because we always enjoy hearing from you that's all for this episode <laughs>